I want to take a break from the podcast right now and I want to give you a gift. I don't want to do that to thank you for being a listener. I put my heart and soul into this podcast. I love interviewing today's experts, researchers, MDs, psychologists, sleep trainers, you name it. I just, I hope you feel inspired to take care of yourselves and your families. And I just want to thank you for, for being a listener and hanging out with me. So the code podcast10 is going to give you a one-time $10 off code at kellylevesque.com, your next order of protein powder. You can either use that on my grass-fed beef isolate protein or on my new vegan chocho bean protein. Now, here's what I love about my protein powders. It's three ingredients or less. So we don't use fillers, emulsifiers, no fortified vitamins or minerals. It's easy to digest and naturally made without any enzymes or chemicals like hexane. So it's three ingredients. With my grass-fed beef isolate, that's 100% grass-fed beef, and it's made in the way that you would make bone broth. So just heat and water. And we dehydrate it, that end product to get that collagen-rich protein powder that your whole family can drink. It can be added to coffees, to smoothies, and you can get it in vanilla, chocolate, and unflavored. I wanna point out that my vanilla and chocolate is made with organic vanilla bean, organic cacao, and the only sweetener used is organic monk fruit. We don't use any maltodextrin. Our monk fruit is 100% ground monk fruit, and it's organic. And with my vegan line, I'm so excited to have launched this and to have it out into the world. It's a regenerative bean from South America called the chocho bean. And the chocho bean is the most superior plant-based protein powder you can get your hands on because not only is it a complete protein, but the process is made with heat and water only. They're crushed and soaked, and what that end product results in is an anti-nutrient-free protein powder. So you're not gonna have any lectins, phytates, or oxalates in your protein powder. Makes it super easy to digest, and it's really, really delicious and robust in cooking as well. So I love it if I want a thicker smoothie or a smoothie bowl, and I also love it in my baked goods, from my cookies to my muffins, pancakes and breads. It's the perfect protein addition. So if you wanna give either of these proteins a try or you've already been purchasing these proteins and wanna take advantage of this special deal, the code PODCAST10 is gonna get you $10 off for being a listener here at the Be Well by Kelly podcast. So head to kellylevesque.com or bewellbykelly.com Put the protein you'd like to purchase in your cart and use the code PODCAST10 for $10 off. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. I'm so excited about today's guest. Marianne Van Horn is a neuroscientist studying developmental neuroplasticity. She obtained her PhD in neurophysiology from McGill University and is currently a postdoc researcher at the Montreal Neurological Institute, where she studies molecular and cellular mechanisms underlying developmental neuroplasticity. Whew, mouthful. She studies how external factors can influence how neurons explore and is trying to better understand the nitty gritty signaling pathways underlying how neurons make strong synaptic connections with other neurons to make functional neural circuits. Marion is also a mom of three and is fascinated about how early life experiences can influence the development of her kids. Marion leans on the research that tells us that early life experiences are important for shaping the brain and uses this as an excuse to slow down and appreciate the time she has with her children. While parenting is not easy, she reminds us that the books we read, our children, the conversations we have, the banana bread we make, the camping trips we go on are all experiences that will help build a better brain in the long run. Marianne lives in Montreal, Canada, and she and her husband share candid everyday moments on their YouTube channel, Viva Family, and on Instagram at Marianne underscore Van Horn. So without further ado, let's get to the show. You guys, I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Marianne Van Horn to the show. She's a research associate. And today we're going to talk about brain development, including developmental plasticity. And we're going to learn about synaptic pruning. Really exciting stuff. Dr. Marianne is a research associate. Technically, in the States, it'd be called her postdoc. She is deep in the research. And, um, and I'm really just so excited to learn from her. She's a mom of three. And you know, as moms with all our kids at home, I think she has some amazing techniques on how we can just be supportive of our kids and their brain development. And then also we'll dive into a little bit of COVID stuff and how 
we can protect ourselves and um, and what it means to have this pandemic happening and for me personally during pregnancy. So um, Dr. Marion, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Researchers don't, you know, step away from their lab bench that often. So this is uh, this is new to me and exciting. And so I'm really happy to be here and chat. I've well, I've watched your podcast and I think you interview some really great people. So it's, it's fun. Well, I get really excited to interview people that are doing the work. So researchers are my favorite. Doctors are my favorite. I love to I love to just learn what you're learning because it's cutting edge. It's the stuff that's coming out of the lab right now, and the things that we're learning that I you know I just love for it to be timely. So often there are like you know scientific books or um, you know the books that you get in classes if you're going to back to school, and they were published five years ago on research that was published twenty years ago, and I just I like yeah. the new age stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's really the point is the biggest problem with the stuff that we're doing in the labs is it takes years sometimes. I think I I read that it takes up to 20 years before things are actually out and public knowledge and and things are happening really quickly. And as scientists, we're, we're really focused sometimes on just our own individual work and what we're doing and publishing papers. It's really competitive. And so sometimes we forget to like step back and, and look at the big picture and try and tell people about it. And because sometimes it's complicated and it's not always easy to relate it to, to like your neighbor on the street or even your mom or your, <laughs> or your grandmother. But I think ultimately that should be our goal. So I was inspired by Andrew Huberman, which Dr. Andrew Huberman, who you had on your podcast, and he's doing some really great work. And he's he's sharing his knowledge. And I was like, if he can do it, he's a Stanford professor. He's super busy. Um, I'm going to try. <laughs> so I'm happy to, to chat with you. Oh, good. I'm so excited. Yeah, no, definitely. I think um, I think especially people like you and Dr. Huberman, if, if you're able to just give us an analogy or break it down or give us an applicable tool that we can use with our kids or something that, that you've learned um, from your research, I mean, that's where the golden nuggets are and that's where the takeaways yeah. are. So I'm so, so excited to have you. But before we get started into the exact research that you're doing and what you're learning, I'd love to understand... Um, why you went back to school, what inspired you to become a researcher, and what exactly you're researching in your lab? So I'll start, um, I guess, at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> I've always been interested in in health in general. If you, if I go back to, I've been in school for a really long time. I think I've always, I basically have always been in school. <laughs> yeah. um, and if I go back to like, uh, after, even in high school, I always chose um, sciences, and I was interested in biology and physiology, and I took physiology courses after high school. We have um, kind of a pre-university um, degree, so I did a, a health science degree, and then a physiology degree, and so I was learning about the body, and I've also just always, at the same time, been very interested in my own personal health, and I'm always extra, like, I'm really into athletics and on sports teams, so interested in how my nutrition affects um, performance and just in general eating well and I find all those things very interesting so I think naturally I've been just following that course um, so I did an undergrad at McGill in physiology and then from then I became interested in in research um, I connected with a, a neurophysiologist who was in the department and she was really a fabulous uh, researcher um, Dr. Kathy Cullen and so she was doing some interesting research. And so I, start, I started as a research, I don't know, a summer research technician. Or, and, that, and then that turned into a master's and it turned into a PhD. And during that time, I was actually studying eye movements. So I was looking at how the, eye, uh, how the brain controls eye movements. And really interesting to figure out like there are these um, cells in your brainstem which project directly to your eyes and they move your eyes around. And so you don't always think about it, but your eyes are constantly moving. Even if you're focused on something, your eyes are making these tiny little micro saccades. Or sac- and saccades are these big eye movements. If you're looking around the room, you're making all these different eye movements. If you see a train go by, you're making these smooth pursuit types of eye movements. And surprisingly, we still don't know exactly how the brain makes these types of eye movements. So we do these recordings, we record the neural activity. So the brain communicates by changes in, in neural activity. And these cells are really, like they're amazing. They, they have huge changes in activity. So as you move your eyes from 
from right to, to left, you'd hear this huge buzzing of activity. Like all the cells come on and like zoom, zoom, and your eyes move at like this crazy velocity. So they're like the fastest um, moving things, <laughs> like 600 degrees per second, it's like super fast. Wow, that's insane. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like things you wouldn't even think about. And for my PhD um, project, finally, I ended up looking at uh, the neural control of um, virgin's eye movement. So virgin's, you make converging eye movements when you move from, from far to near and vice versa. If you're looking something close to something that's far, you're making, your eyes are moving at all kinds of uh, different angles. And so we were trying to figure out how the brain does that. And it turns out it's not that... Um, complicated, but it is something that we needed to kind of figure out. Um, but after that, after I finished my PhD, and I think if anyone has done a PhD, they will um, understand, you kind of become <laughs> saturated with that field. And I really wanted to go and do something else. Um, I was studying the brain. I was really interested in the brain, but I really felt like I became really specific on, on eye movements. And yeah, different. I heard a lecture from my current advisor, Ed Ruthazer, and he gave this really amazing lecture. I think I was pregnant at the time. I, I was pregnant at the end of my PhD, and I was just fascinated to, to hear about all this um, plasticity that was happening in the brain. And he was doing this cutting-edge research, doing two-photon imaging, where you're able to like go in and look at the cells. And he, he had this technique of, and others too, but of doing calcium imaging. So I did all this um, work studying the electrical activity of neurons, but neurons also communicate in other ways. They have changes in calcium within the cell. And so I was like, oh, I want to, I want to go learn that. <laughs> and so it's kind of non-traditional to really change. I mean, I was still studying neuroscience, but it was a pretty big change. And so I went and did a postdoc in his lab. At that point, I had um, one, one kid. Um, I spent the one year at home with her writing my thesis and also my husband took some time off. So we were home with her for about a year, maybe eight months. And then I went and started um, this postdoc and it was huge learning <laughs> experience. There's so much going on in the brain. It's just every time I, I feel like every day I learn something new and every day I'm like, wow, we didn't know that or this is amazing. And there's so many directions we can go in. So I'm just fascinated about all these different things. <laughs> wow. I mean, for people who have never heard of plasticity, um, can you explain what plasticity is? Yeah. So plasticity is just a really um, simple way of saying that the brain is changing. So if you think of something that is plastic, if you melt plastic a little bit or warm it up, it becomes very malleable. And that's very similar to the brain. If you warm it up, <laughs> if you use it, things are able to change. So our brain is always changing. And that's the concept of neuroplasticity. And if we think of developmental neuroplasticity, when we're babies um, and during early childhood, our, our brain is considered very plastic. There's a lot, of, a lot of change going on, especially during the first two years and then the first 10 years and the first 25 years, the, the brain is constantly reorganizing. And then even in adulthood, um, there's lots of um, opportunities for neuroplasticity. And I think that's the most fascinating thing is that our brain is is always open to change and that um, if we're persistent and we put some effort, we can, if there's something that we don't like, we can change. There's, there's opportunities to change. Definitely. I think um, you hear a lot as a parent about how important those first five years are with children's brain development and how it can set them up for a lifetime of success and ability to learn and all of that. It's good to know that even you know in my late thirties, I have you know, <laughs> change and grow. But I would love to know what you're learning about brain plasticity and development, and what you know when it comes to child development. What we can do to nurture that? If there are any techniques or things that you're seeing parents do that may be actually detrimental too? Right. So yeah, that's really interesting because I would say in the lab. We're doing a lot of studies to look at how neurons are changing and how our experiences and how our environment can affect how neurons grow and how they interact with each other. And so we're interested in looking at how these neural, neural circuits form. And I should say, um, I don't work in humans. So all of our work is in, in an animal model. I use We work on tadpoles. 
And so that's, um, I think, interesting in and of itself. Because usually when I tell people that I, I work in a lab, I'm a neuroscientist and I work with tadpoles, <laughs> they usually, I think they they envision me in a, a pond, like picking up tadpoles and, and, and looking at their, I don't know, they're swimming. And, and we're really studying them because uh, we want to learn more about the human brain. And so there are a lot of things that we can learn from a tadpole brain, really fundamental mechanisms that can tell us a lot about neuroplasticity. And so some of the things that we've been talking about, just that the fact that we can go in and, and image these or take pictures of these neurons. So we can express different proteins that um, if you shine a, a laser at different frequencies, at different wavelengths, you can see them glow under the microscope, which is like really fascinating. And um, I, we should share more pictures of them because they're really beautiful. And you can track these in, um, in a tadpole. So we can look at when they start as a, a little egg and within a week or two, they're swimming, seeing, and they're not fully developed, but they're a developed system. So in this very short period, we can manipulate their environment and their experiences and try and see how that affects how neurons grow and how they interact with each other and how their neural circuits are, are forming. So those are the types of very general experiments. And then we have to really narrow them down into really specific experiences experiments to see. And we're testing things like how does activity, so how does, um, how does the, if you stimulate a certain part of the brain with visual activity, for example, we study an area of the brain called the um, optic tectum in the tadpole, which is very similar or comparable to the visual system or the visual cortex in, in humans. And in that system, it, it connects directly to the eye. So the eye has information from the outside world. It um, activates the, the neurons in the eye, which then send projections to this part of the brain, which then activates that part of the brain. So we want to look at how changes in visual activity affects the, um, the activity in the brain. And so there are all kinds of different types of experiments we can do there. But what's been interesting for me is to try and take some of those takeaways and then um, bring it back home because I do have three kids. And as a scientist, uh, you can sometimes get um, really involved in your work and you're, you're researching things, you're going to the lab, it's very, very busy. And then you're also trying to have a family on the side. And what I've, I've had to really think about is like, what are, what's really important for me as a mom and how can I take what we're learning in the lab and bring it home? And so for this, I've started collaborating with someone outside of academia. Uh, her name is Cindy Huffington. And she's started a website called Curious Neuron. And she, I started um, following her about, about a year ago. And I was just like, wow, this is really... She's, she has a PhD in neuroscience. And she also did a postdoc in education. And, and she was really taking the research, research and translating it for work for me, <laughs> even as a, as a scientist. I'm like, wow, yeah, that's, that's it. And so... Things that she focuses on a lot that I've really related to is the ability to teach our kids how to play. And play is just like the most amazing um, resource really for, for a child. They don't need toys. She's shown me that they don't need toys. They don't need much. The, she's, um, she's taught me things about um, you know, presenting, having an invitation to play. So just really cleaning up your whole play area and just leaving a toy here and there and your child will go in and find one toy and and just start start playing. And so she'll go through um, the science behind it and explain how, yeah, if you give your, your child the opportunity to play, this develops confidence, this develops independence and a whole type, all these different skills that you don't really think about. So now I have a, a totally different uh, outlook on... One of my ch children are playing. It's really affected the way I've um, uh, restructured our, our home so that we've gotten rid of a lot of toys. Everything's much simpler. I, I really like to give my kids a lot of opportunity to just kind of find their own way because that's the other, those are the other types of things that were, um, that are important is that our, our, I think um, as parents, sometimes we want to really keep our kids safe. And in doing so, sometimes we take away opportunities that are actually really important for them. So another um, thing I just thought about is my middle daughter, um, she's seven and she's a, she loves adventures. So she's out in the park and she is, she's drawn to the trees and she just loves climbing trees. And so at first, I, like, I don't know, you should, I 
please come down. <laughs> you're, you're, I'm, I'm nervous. And, and now I'm just like, okay, she's, she's climbing trees. She's, it's amazing. She's getting up there. She's never fallen. She, she's, um, she's happy. <laughs> and then when I look into the research, there's actually research showing how you just climbing trees is really good for cognition, for memory, for uh, working memory, for planning, for confidence, all these things that you wouldn't even think about that you have to think at the level of a, a small a child and think, how are these, how are they building different skills that maybe they're going to need when they're, they're teenagers? And it's really starting from, from day one. Um, I love that so, so much. I love that so much because I'm just even thinking about, which I'm sure everyone does when they hear research or they, or they look into a finding is how does that relate to my life? And I right. feel so adventurous and I love for Bash to climb. I mean, his nickname is Bash, which is sort of mm-hmm. a problem <laughs> in itself because we've been to the ER too many times to count. He's not even two. But, mm-hmm. um, but just to know that, like to have that in my back pocket because um, we call Chris, my husband, the safety officer. That's oh, really? always like holding hands, crossing the street, no climbing, no... Like, and you know, he's oh. a, Bash is a little boy, you know? Yeah. And it's... It's scary for us to watch him. I'm sure as it was for you to watch your middle daughter, like be fearless, you know? But I think that's like, just even hearing you say that, that is a lesson that I want him to have. Like, I don't want him to be afraid of the world. I don't want him to be afraid to climb big trees. Um, Exactly. You know? So, I mean, Mm -hmm. the, the simplicity of your parenting advice from like cleaning out toys and having an empty space where they can imagine to climbing trees. Um, I think all of us have this propensity to overschedule, buy lots of toys, you know, try to get all the small motor, the large motor, the cognitive, like all of the check all the boxes and and go to all the classes so that our child isn't behind. But it seems like the yeah. research is is proving that that it isn't as important as we thought it was. Right. Well, there's no research to show that going to a lot of classes is going to make your child um, smarter or have more social skills or anything like that. um, So really early in development, it's really important for just you and your child and your family unit to have connections. And so that's um, in the psychology research. I've I've read a lot of really interesting books as a parent. You know, I'm studying neuroscience, but I did a, a degree in, in psychology or a minor during my undergrad. And so I did learn about child psychology when I was 23 or something, <laughs> but I don't remember any of it. It was so not part of my life at that point. So I've gone back and I've, I've looked at some of the psychologists and there's some really great resources out there of child psychologists who are breaking it down. And I recommend any parent to connect with people and someone who, um, who, you know, you, that you, that you connect with and that you under, that you um, feel there <laughs> feel like there's something to it that you can take take away from it. And so I've I've connected with um, uh, now I'm blanking on her name Lisa. I have her book somewhere. The No Drama Discipline, and she has she is really she and Daniel Siegel have yeah. some really. Do you know them? The whole brain um, child, no yeah, drama whole, discipline. They have like three or four books and they're easy reads. You can read them in an, not even an afternoon. And you, there's like immediate takeaways, uh, learning about our child psychology. And it, all of it made so much sense to me, understanding that the brain is constantly changing and that our children really just need us there to support them and that they're, they're learning how to regulate their emotions, that tantrums are totally normal. This is also something that... Um, is on the Curious Neuron website, learning about tantrums. For, for me, I just, you know, it's very frustrating to see your child having a tantrum and, and it happens over the littlest things. You can't control your environment so that they don't have a tantrum. That doesn't work. It's, and then to understand that it's totally normal. They're having a tantrum. You're there to support them, whatever they need. If they need time alone or there's different, there's different things we can put in our toolbox and then every time will be different and we'll learn. And I think that's the most important thing is that as parents, no one knows <laughs> what's going on. Every child is different and we're all learning. So my first child to my third child, they've all been so different and I have to kind of navigate differently because they have different personalities, different traits. It's just, you know, 
it's chaos at times, but it's good. (laughs) It's embracing the chaos. That's what I'd like to say because there's, it's, it's a lot. Being a parent is a lot. It's hard. It's, it's time consuming. It's energy draining and they're, they're leaning on us. They really need us to be there. And I would say the other thing during, during this pandemic, which I've learned when we're home and my kids were home from March until September full time. And my husband and I are both trying to kind of navigate and, and, and do some work. Um, you learn a lot about your kids. And I think that's what's been so like the positives about this take this pandemic is been getting to know our kids and oh it's been great <laughs> in that sense. I mean there's some rough moments. There's not a question, but it's been really great it, when I look back at the at the big picture. We've I gotten to know each other. <laughs> I love that. I love that. What are what, you know I think we're all just kind of I don't know, um, not saying winging it, but we're all just in there going, okay, like we're creating some sort of structure today, but we also want to have fun and we want to take care of our children. What are some things that you've been implementing since having them home um, that you are kind of like, you know, not, not, I wouldn't say deal breakers, but things that you're like, this has to happen every day, or this is really important to us because I know it's important to your brain development, or I know it's important to your plasticity in general and Mm -hmm. um, that are just kind of always, they have to happen in your house um, that maybe other people... So there's some some key themes that I try to keep in our (laughs) house um, with keeping a lot of flexibility. So scheduling did not work for us. Uh, I remember for the first day home, I saw all these posts on Instagram, how they were, you know, nine to 10, we're doing this. And that can work for, for some people. And we did have maybe in the beginning, our school was pretty good. We had Zoom calls. So they, they did that. But otherwise, we really tried to let things flow. Um, but we always went outside. That was the, um, on the, on the, the, check, the checklist, going outside as often and as long as possible. I think that was the best thing for us. In the beginning in March in Canada, it's quite cold. Um, weather can be uh, not great. <laughs> and so in the beginning, there's, there's tears. People don't want to go out. It's more comfortable inside. But we went out like, as much as possible. And I don't know if I've mentioned this or, or not, but we have a YouTube video, a uh, YouTube channel with our family. And so we'll, sometimes we were making YouTube videos and sometimes we we're going for walks. Sometimes we're just, we really tried to have fun. And, and that's something that I think that has, um, I've had to work on <laughs> since having children. In the beginning, I felt like I was a little more uh, straight and narrow and there were rules and we should, and people should be dressed and people should be hairbrushed and things. And those have really gone. <laughs> like if, if my, my daughter has like beautiful curly hair, if it gets washed and brushed once a week, that's a check mark. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm happy. Um, sometimes it's better, but we've lowered, we lowered our expectations and I actually found it was much easier for us. Yeah. I feel like when we hold ourselves to such high expectations, it just creates more anxiety and stress and we're putting it on ourselves. And a lot of times there are things that don't really matter. Like care. <laughs> right, absolutely. Um, and, and so getting back to... <laughs> Getting back to going outside, there's actually a ton of research showing that we should be outside as, as a lot. And um, up to one to three hours is really what's suggested for, for children and even, and even young babies. So there's research suggesting that um, getting outside, we can help set our circadian rhythms and, and that can help us sleep better at night. It, it helps with exercise. So moving our body is really important. Um, independent play outside, finding things that aren't toys, sticks. My son, we have a collection of sticks by the front door because every time he goes out, he finds a new stick and he, and he, he hides them places. And um, we've been really lucky because we do have a park across the street from us. We live um, in pretty much downtown Montreal, but just um, on a little street so that we are able to have, we have a park and we have lots of green space directly in front of us, but we also try to take lots of little adventures. So we'll drive to a new park that's um, 20 minutes away or we'll, my mom lives not far, but about an hour away and she has a a big property. So we'll go there. Or now that there's restrictions, we've tried to become more creative and we're finding little 
nooks and crannies within our city. And it's been, it's been fun to, to kind of have these adventures. And sometimes it's not easy to get them out. <laughs> um, but usually but there are always great moments. So we try to build these, these memories. This is such great advice because I feel like so many parents with Zoom's calls and the schedules that they have and then like tutors stepping in or people trying to support that these kids are in front of their screens the majority of the day and then never going outside. And if the research is saying one to three hours, that's like way more than I know the majority of kids are getting. What oh, is sure. there? Is there a time? Um, does the research suggest timing for... Um, playing outside, or um, is it just kind of like get it in? Um, you know, whenever is better than never. Um, but there's a lot of good research showing that if you get out early in the morning, this helps set your circadian rhythm. So just the, the changes in light um, can tell your brain that it's morning time, and then changes the, the type of light that's in the evening will tell your brain it's nighttime. So all these things are happening that we don't even think about. Uh, so yeah, ideally it would be great to get out in the morning and at some time at night and maybe in the middle of the day. And so your brain is all like, oh yeah, keeping track of what time it is and maybe they'll sleep better at night. Um, I know there is some research. I don't know the research that well, but in, even in infants that it can help set their circadian rhythm. Um, and that kind of brings me to the next topic of sleep, which is our other, I'm kind of, uh, pretty strict on sleep. I mean, we're, we can be a little flexible, but I really try and make sure that they're they're sleeping well and that they get enough sleep. And I think during the pandemic, when we were home, that that was actually pretty good because they were able to go to bed and wake up naturally. So we didn't have alarms set. And I think that's really important because the research is showing that we have um, these different phases of sleep and it changes throughout development. And we don't know exactly what's happening when the brain is sleeping, but we know that there's a ton of uh, neuroplasticity. So the brain is reorganizing um, during sleep. And there's a, I read this really fantastic book by Matt Walker, Why We Sleep, which is just a fascinating read. Um, I would recommend that to anyone who's interested in sleep. And I think I, I related to a number of different um, things he brought up in the book. Uh, some <laughs> being as a parent, we want to be getting enough sleep because especially if you're home with your children, if you're not getting enough sleep, if you're trying to work until one or two or three in the morning and then getting up, you're cranky. It's just like, it's impossible to be patient with your children who need you to be patient if you're not getting enough sleep. And I've noticed that if, if I can't fall asleep and then I, I mean, my problem is I go to bed and then I can't fall asleep. And then I start worrying that I'm not getting enough sleep. <laughs> no, so, so that's, no. Don't get into that <laughs> problem, but Try to try to get the the seven to nine hours of sleep, and I mean it's great if you can just get into a regular routine. And so sleeping the same, going to bed at the same time, and waking up at the same time—not always possible, but if you at the big picture, if you can try and fit that in, <laughs> it's good. I think having kids really supports you to be on a schedule too. Whereas oh, yeah, I used to go sure. to bed when I was like, oh, we watched a show or like I'm reading a book, and then I get wrapped up in it and you know you can look up and be like no and then I'm <laughs> yeah, just exactly. I'm just like you because all all that floods my brain is all of the problems that are going to happen the next day. <laughs> I'm like dec um, decreased insulin sensitivity, increased like hunger, like all the things. Yeah, um, exactly. inability to concentrate and learn. I'm like, oh my gosh. Stress <laughs> stress myself out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right. So we're going outside for one to three hours a day with our children, preferably sometime in the morning and sometime at night, just so that their little circadian clocks can link up with, okay, it's morning. Okay. It's night to support sleep. Really focusing on sleep as a priority, seven to nine hours, trying not to use alarms if we can avoid it, especially if people yeah. are still home with the pandemic. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's this, this idea that we need to set our alarm and get up early and be really productive. Something I, I read in this book and um, I looked into the research and it's fascinating is that we do go through these cycles of sleep and, and it's you're going from deep sleep to REM sleep, so rapid eye movement sleep. And these different phases, the brain is going through totally different um, different types of changes. So some is really important for memory consolidation and we're really just figuring out like, what are the neurons doing? How are they reorganizing? There's a lot of... Um, we, I don't think we've talked about this, but synaptic pruning so that 
there are these specialized cells in the brain called microglia, which are the immune cells of the brain. And they come in and they start nibbling on our synapses. <laughs> the synapses are the, are the point of communication between two neurons. And so they're changing, and especially in children. Um, they're, they're, they're changing a lot during the first couple of years. So these microglia have been shown within the last two or three years to be act to be inhibited by norepinephrine. And norepinephrine is this neuromodulator that's increased during the day and decreased during it during night. So they think that these microglia cells are kind of turning on at night and coming in and doing all the cleanup. And and so I think that's just fascinating <laughs> to think that there are these microglia and, and these are things that we're studying in the brain we in the in the lab. We can follow the microglia for hours on end and see what they're doing and how they change shape and how they get close to synapses. And there's this new term called um, trigocytosis where they come in and they think they nibble on the synapses. So um, I think that's really cool. And, and we don't know, like we just are figuring it out now. So it's crazy. Get your, get your sleep. It's crazy <laughs> for me to think about sleep because we know, we know how restorative sleep is. We know how good we feel when we sleep. I mean, if you've ever had a great night's sleep, you just know your mood is different. Your like your hunger cues are different. Your like you were saying, your ability to have patience with your children, to manage stress in your job. But then we learn about the lymphatic system. We learn that there's amyloid plaque that's being cleansed every evening Absolutely, when yeah. when that sleep is happening. And now to learn that there are these. There are these synaptic pruning mechanisms to like it. I mean, that just blows my mind. It's it's mm-hmm. taking it a step further. So you said that they're they're initial or they're um, only doing this type of synaptic pruning in the presence of norepinephrine or in the in the absence of norepinephrine. The, it looks like in the absence. So these are papers that have come out just in the last year or two, showing that if you add norepinephrine, they they are less motile. So they're not as dynamic. They're not moving as much. So they the hypothesis is is that during sleep, when norepinephrine is is lower, that these cells would start to um, activate and do that type of um, pruning. Do our activities and our the things that we do throughout the day stimulate norepinephrine? Is there is there something that we may be doing before bed that creates norepinephrine that is not great for this type of pruning? I, um, I don't think so. So norepinephrine is is really it's a neuromodulator. It comes on during alertness and during high levels of activity, like in terms of brain activity. And so it's higher in general when we're awake. And then when we're asleep, the levels drop. And there and it could be more complicated than that. We could have little spikes of norepinephrine through the night. And it could be that there are specific phases of the sleep. So um, during the deep sleep, they might be more important as compared to the REM sleep. But these are, I mean, these are studies that they're going to just start to I would say they're just starting to write the grants to get the money to do the to do the experiments in a couple of years, which are going to be done in probably in mice, which are then going to be published. And so we're talking like ten to fifteen years before we even really have an answer to these questions. But I think the takeaway is get enough sleep because there's a lot of stuff going on, and we're just starting to ask the right questions. Right, right. I think about like adrenaline and norepinephrine and like the the kind of like that like hit training response to like working out really hard and being really amped up and really focused. Um, Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's not the best stuff before bed. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, absolutely. There's probably, it's probably a good idea to um, start to ramp down before sleep and not put it, not a full workout right before you you go to bed. (laughs) That's amazing. I I mean, talk about like not only like the molding and the plasticity part, but now we're talking about a whole other function of like pruning and seems like getting rid of the stuff that we don't necessarily need moving forward. Right. And so that's why when we're babies, we're sleeping all the time. We're going, we're, we're basically waking up to learn something and falling asleep. And so our, our brain is constantly going, constantly going in and out of these states. Um, and so it's really important for babies to have the opportunity to sleep. However, I think we're so fixated on sleep um, we think that our babies should be sleeping like the whole night or that we should, uh, that they should be trained and they should be have really strict schedules. And I, I'm not sure that the research is there. For sure, um, babies don't develop circa- their own circadian rhythms with 
right away. So it's totally natural and normal that our children are, are not sleeping through the night. And if anyone's listening and knows a new mother, please do not ask them if their child is sleeping through the night. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's not the right question. <laughs> like, ask them if you should um, deliver them a lasagna tonight or tomorrow. That's like, <laughs> that's it. Don't, don't ask them if their child is sleeping through the night. I just, I absolutely hate that question. <laughs> yeah, well, it's true because it's literally day by day, night by night. And, and it changes. It will change for for every child will be different and they one child will you know there are things going on we have to be responsive to them and i think that's our our should be our priority as parents and i think when we're constantly hearing or are they sleeping through the night how are they sleeping are they a good sleeper it's like oh should they be like what and then that's not that's not what we know we know that they should be sleeping in intervals and and also be awake and going back between the two states but this idea that they should go to bed and and sleep the whole night eight or nine hours is just not realistic. <laughs> yeah. Talk to me it's about... Yeah, definitely. And I think what you just said um, stood out to me is to be responsive. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, um, one of the things that I'd love for you to go into is like, what does the brain development... What is What does a child need in brain development when it comes to like our responsiveness to our child, our presence with our child? What are we seeing in the research there? Yeah, that's a really good question, um, and that's getting into like my my some of my interests. I don't I don't know the research that well, but some of the more common sense um, things will come to mind is that uh, we do need to build these attachments with our children, and they need to feel safe, and that we are responding to their basic needs. And so, I think that's what's happening a lot within the first one to two years is that you and your child have to form this bond. And it doesn't necessarily have to be with both caregivers. What they're showing is that they really need at least one secure attachment. And so this is the secure attachment theory. And um, and so that's that's really important. Is I think people stress that maybe that one parent is attached to the child or has more of an attachment than the other. And I think that's that's totally normal. I mean more secure attachments the better. But they will. Do, the research shows that with one attachment, it doesn't even necessarily have to be a, a primary caregiver. It could be another a caregiver. But they need to feel that attachment that they that they're being responded. Their needs are being res- met and responded to, and they're not in a in an anxious, anxiety kind of uh, state. Definitely. What about when it comes to? Because I know we we talked a little bit about this when we were getting to know each other. Uh, when it comes to nutrition and what the brain needs, and what you're showing in regards to, um, you know, cognitive development and neuroplasticity, what are what are some big needs of the brain when it comes to nutrition? There are some big needs that we need to do more research. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think it's fascinating to that there isn't more research on nutrition, and as someone who's had gone through three pregnancies and no one has talked to me about my nutrition, I think is mind boggling. Um, so I became interested in choline um, not too long ago. I started doing, I'm, I'm working on a project in the lab where I look at an amino acid called D-serine. And D-serine is, is we found is really important for, for synapses, for synapses to mature. It binds to a receptor called the NMDA receptor along with glutamate, it binds and it activates the receptor. And it's like one of the most important glutamatergic excitatory synapses in the brain. And it was only discovered in the brain less, it was like less than 20 years ago, they started to discover D-serine in the brain. And they like, wow, usually we don't have D-amino acids in the brain. And so then they, they've done some more research. So I think they found it in postmortem tissue. And so from then, they have to figure out what it's doing. Now they've, they've discovered that it binds to a, a receptor. Um, this re- it also this receptor also binds glycine, so another amino acid. So I started looking into these amino acids. I'm like, wow, this is fascinating. Where are these amino acids coming from? <laughs> How are they made? And um, so in the research we're doing is we're looking at neurons, but we're also looking at these neighboring cells called astrocytes or glia. And so these glial cells um, touch the, the vascular system. So it seems like they're getting a lot of nutrients from the blood and the the nutrients are coming to the astrocytes. The astrocytes are breaking it into whatever nutrients or whatever amino acids we need, and it's getting to the neurons or, or wherever we need it. Um, and so, long story short, I, I guess how I became interested in choline is because 
acetylcholine is what is thought to drive, or there's a recent study that acetylcholine drives deserine release. And so it's like, oh, well, where does acetylcholine come from? It comes from choline. <laughs> and um, yeah, there's a ton of research that shows that choline is really important for brain development. And still, supplements don't have choline. No one talks about choline. Um, it's very hard to get choline on a without having meat or some kind of animal protein. And why don't I know this? So I was really, I think I find it very frustrating that most people would, would have no idea that choline is extremely important for not only brain development, but brain health in general. It seems that there's decreased levels of choline associated with Alzheimer's as well. So I wouldn't, I, I think that if we look at menopause, we probably show that our, I'm, they probably have shown that choline levels are depleted and we probably should be increasing our choline at, um, at pre-menopause or you know, like <laughs> lots of times. So I'm really, I'm really interested and fascinated about nutrition and I love nutrition. <laughs> so we're trying to increase our, our at home anyways, I'm always trying to increase our micronutrients and our macronutrients and, you know, find all kinds of different things to eat. And so we eat sometimes uh, animal protein and sometimes plant protein. And we try and I, at least I do, no one else is as enthusiastic as I am. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> But they're they're coming on board. Everyone's everyone loves cooking, and so that's a big part of our our day is cooking and, and eating. Choline's really something that's come to light for me based on my like pregnancy course and diving into the research there. And that so many prenatals don't even don't even have choline in them, mm-hmm. and then some have. You know, um, you know, we're seeing research as high as nine hundred, um, and some even the choline and most of our prenatals are below 400. So it's like insane to me the the quantity difference in in some prenatals and that you know where are we getting it? Animal protein, eggs, like really like that's like you said that's like the strongest place where we can get those amino acids and we can get things like choline that um that are breaking down to things like deserine. Who would have thought yeah. that that yeah. <laughs> that that is binding to a receptor and allowing uh you know allowing for brain. Yeah. Acetylcholine is important for memory and focus and I think in general if we're low in, in choline, well there will be cognitive um side effects and we might not notice it. And I think that's the that's the thing to keep in mind with some of our with nutrition is that we might be deficient in, in things that we don't even know and, and we could be suffering and constantly we don't see the consequences necessarily right away. Definitely. That's hard. That's a hard pill to swallow, unfortunately. What are some of your favorite favorite brain foods or um, nutrients that you're looking to get from your food for yourself and your children that support brain development, plasticity, um, and all of that? Well, I've been focused on choline. So um, I started following Lily Nichols. She was on yeah. Lily Nichols. She was on your podcast. I thought that was, I'm not pregnant. And I'm like listening. I'm finding it so fascinating. I want to take your pregnancy course. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not pregnant. I'm not, I don't plan on getting pregnant. Anyways, but I think it's important. I think pulling in general is important. So I could start with that. Yesterday we made um, this shepherd's pie. And so the bottom, we did it with meat and then we did hidden liver. So I have <laughs> recently started buying liver and adding it to a few little things. I've made chopped liver. Actually, we made quite a few videos for our YouTube channel. So we have a a chopped liver um, recipe. And I mean, they're very uh, casual YouTube videos. The production level is pretty low, but they're authentic. So it's fun. (laughs) I love that. A lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I like to eat a lot of real foods. So I've kind of gone... Um, pretty extreme in, in taking out all preservatives from our foods, and I tried it, and it's hard. <laughs> but I really, I've gone through all of our cupboards. It was really great last year. We had um, we re- renovated our kitchen, so it was a good opportunity. And the other night, my kids were lying in bed, and, and this broke my heart. Like, how can we never get those fun snacks with the gummy bears and the and I. And so I'm trying to also you know, try and make it fun and trying to figure out activities so we can make gummy bears and figure out what's in them. And um, so a rule for, for me is I try to keep things at home as, as healthier as possible. But then when they're out, I really just 
and grandparents come over and I am very um, flexible. The other yeah. night, my, my, not the other night, but a while ago when we were, allowed, when we were still allowed to have uh, visitors in our house, um, my father-in-law came over and just before dinner gave them all smart, like a package of Smarties. <laughs> It's like, oh, okay, <laughs> but you know, whatever. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> they ate the Smarties. They didn't eat much dinner, but I think for, for me, I have to keep everything in perspective. And it's so much more important that they're making, they're bonding with their grandfather and whatever. If they're eating yeah. Smarties instead of dinner tonight's tonight's yeah. a write-off. Who cares? <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, you're just balancing it with sneaking liver in their shepherd's pie, so it's totally yeah. fine. <laughs> You know, exactly. I think it's about the effort. I really do think it's about the balance and the effort and controlling the controllable. And you're doing a great job at that. Um, I have, I know Lily has some gummies, like tart cherry gummies. And I know mm-hmm. Katie Wells, the wellness mama, has some <laughs> amazing gummy bears. So, um, you know, gelatin and collagen rich uh, little yeah. treats for your kiddos. I'm sure you guys could make those. But, um, but I love that so much. I really do think that... Um, I think it's so interesting to be where you are in your research and your career to like have these have these aha moments of like how come no one knows this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a neuroscientist and I don't like <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the fact that we're continually learning um we're learning is really really important. Um what have you what have you learned about um like immunity and COVID and what we can be doing, um, what we can be doing to support ourselves. And for me specifically through pregnancy. Yeah. uh, So that's some of the research that we're specifically doing in the lab is looking at how early immune activation can affect, um, have long-term consequences on brain functioning and brain, like how your brain wires up. And there are some really interesting studies that have shown that women, pregnant women who had children when after having rubella or some kind of influenza where they were hospitalized have a higher, um, have children that have a higher risk for developing schizophrenia um, and autism and a few other neurodevelopmental disorders, which is just in general interesting to think that something that's happening in your body when you're pregnant you'll only see the consequences 20 years later. And so it's interesting. It's also very scary <laughs> because I was learning about these studies when I was pregnant with my with my second. And I was, I definitely had a little flu in the middle of my pregnancy and I'm lying there and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm picturing my child's brain and how it's wiring up. But anyways, it's, it's a very uh, low uh, risk. It's just there is the possibility um, that it increases the, the risk. And so that with other maybe um, environmental insults and it's cumulative, probably a genetic component. And they all, they're all interacting so that in 20 years, there's some, there's some outcome. Like yeah. schizo- well, schizophrenia is a, an extreme, but, um, but it, it just shows you that these early life experiences, experiences in, in utero, our environment, they they are important and they're shaping the way our brain is is uh, wiring up. Yeah, La- long becoming, lasting. It's, yeah, and it's long lasting. So I, I know when we we go and get an ultrasound when we're pregnant and and we check out, oh, there's a, all the organs and the heart's beating and it's like we breathe a sigh of relief, but like there's still stuff going on that we have to keep. Um, uh, we have to think about, and I think nutrition during pregnancy, before and after pregnancy, is probably. The, one of the most important in terms of um, initial development, and then regulating some kind of our stress levels when we're pregnant doesn't mean that we have to eliminate stress. And I think that's really important for us to remember in general: is stress doesn't need to be eliminated; it just needs to be managed. We have to manage our emotions, our everything. Try to keep a positive um, outlook, I guess, on 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 whatever stressful events because it happens. It's not. <laughs> It's always happening. There, you're always going to have things that are go- going on that are going to bring us some kind of stress or anxiety. And keeping a positive outlook that has been shown um, to be beneficial for the long term. Wow, I love that. Just to think, like you might not be able to control everything, but if you can write down some positive things that have happened throughout your day and start to focus on those, to find those in your day, can really be supportive of of your child's brain development is, is awesome and amazing. Right. Well, and it's even for like everyday parenting. If we can change our mindset a little, our children are going to fight and 
that's okay. They're learning, you know, they're learning to communicate with each other and they're going to be in a bad mood. That's okay. If we recognize their emotions and um, we can teach them things through just being with them and supporting them. And we don't have to eliminate. I think that's really the important thing is recognizing emotions and not eliminating stresses. And they can see that we are, we're going through things too. And that's important. It's, it's I think, important for our children to see the authentic us. <laughs> and sure, they're going to, yeah. So I wanted to tell you that the other day, I, um, one thing that's important for, for me is that I see some of my, I have some really close girlfriends and they've moved. They're about two hours away, but I still make an effort to, to see them. And it's been really hard recently, but one of them was having a birthday. So I decided I was going to drive and meet them for a walk in the woods <laughs> and have a picnic outside. And so just as I was leaving, my daughter came up to me and she said, how could you go on a... How can you leave us like this? And we've just spent like six months together <laughs> all day, every day. They've gone... They just started going back to school. So she's like, you know, when we go to school, you stay home. And then when we come home, you leave us. <laughs> I'm like, wow, where is this, this is coming from? Like, yeah. <laughs> and I, I realized, like, uh, so I had to take a moment because, like, wow, that's a lot. I, I, I don't want to feel guilty. I'm just, I really need a day to go and 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 visit and chat with my other um, other friends. And and so I, I, I took a moment, and, I, and then I, I realized that it is a lot for her. I hadn't, I hadn't told her. I, I'd spoken to my husband. He knew I was going. I may have mentioned it. So it was, it was a big, it was a big moment for her. She's like, where is she leaving? Why is she leaving us? And, and then in the end, she, you know, she wasn't happy, but I left and, and I was okay. I was like, I'll be back. And then when I came back, I told her about my trip and I told her how important it is for me to be seeing my friends and that I have a life outside my family. I go to work and all these things are really important for her to see that this is, this is real life. And, and she was, and when I came back, she was obviously extremely happy and she had a great day and everything was smiling. So these moments were where we think, um, you know, there could be different reactions when, when that happens that you have to kind of remember that they're, they're young and they're, they're, um, they just need us <laughs> to support and not react to them. Definitely. And I think also communication, the communication and coming back and explaining the importance, you're validating like that her, her feelings are real, but that you also have feelings and that when she feels, I'm sure when you're teaching her, when she becomes a mom and if she becomes a mom and then has a job and then has her friends, that life is a juggle. And it Mm -hmm. is about like that you are the most important thing to me because you're my family, but I haven't seen these people in months. And like, this is also important. That's a, it's, it's, it's full circle and full communication, I think is just such a great example that you're setting for your kids. Yeah. I think that's, that's one of the biggest things that I've learned is your family is really important, but you're important and your outside life is important and they need to see everything. And we shouldn't be trying to make it look like we have any kind of um, anything figured out that it's always evolving. We're all learning. My kids teach me things all the time and I think that's great. So, um, that's kind of how I want to have our, our family is that we're all interacting with each other and communicating and and growing together. I love it. Being present for our kids, getting them outside, making sure they're sleeping, looking at their micronutrients, (laughs) looking at their micronutrients, trying to elevate the choline in their diet, um, and getting them involved so that they're willing to eat these beautiful, um, real foods, I think is so, so important. Well, geez, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. And I'm so excited. Really fun. So excited for this episode to hit. Um, where can people follow along with you? I know you have a family YouTube channel, so we can yeah. learn how to make liver and liver. Or my husband is actually adding. We did a pumpkin pie recipe from scratch, like pumpkin. We went to the market, bought the pumpkins. It took us like over twenty four hours, but it was really fun. Um, so our our family YouTube channel is called Viva Family, and and then I'm on Instagram um, with my name Marion Van Horn. Okay, great. Well, we will yeah. we will tag you in the show notes and we'll make sure that the YouTube channel is in the show notes as well. If people want to follow along. I just, I'm so excited about what you're doing and it was really fun to get an insight into, um, into the changes that we're seeing, um, even down to synaptic pruning. So yeah. important. <laughs> keep, your, keep your door open after and low, people. 
We want Just that before first. bed. Yeah. <laughs> we want it high in the day to focus. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, with today's with today's stress levels and artificial light and our ability to like not ever need to follow a circadian rhythm, it can be easy to kind of mess all that stuff up. So um, just more reason for people to get excited about sleep. So (laughs) thank you so much for your time. This was so fun. And thank you so much. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to Be Well by Kelly. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at bewellbykelly.com and follow me on Instagram at bewellbykelly. I would love if you picked up my books, Body Love and Body Love Every Day. They're sold on Amazon and at all major booksellers. 